Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much. And I too, thank you so much, Crystal. And I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care program, Living with Chronic Myelogenous Leukemia, or CML. And today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations. Um, and because of that collaboration, we've been able to reach so many of you on the call today, in addition to your interest in the program today, because it's such an important topic and one that I know of interest to many of you on the call. Um, we, because of that, we have about we have 446 participants on the call, so it's a large call, and we have um, people from the United States, from all different parts of the United States, from both rural, urban, suburban, and frontier communities, and we also have international participants from Canada and United Kingdom, so a bit of a global call as well. Um, today's program is supported by Pfizer, Takeda Oncology, and the Dianapolis Fund, and I really want to thank them for their support of the program. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, so I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Michael Morrow. Dr. Morrow is leader, Myeloproliferative Neoplasms Program, member Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Professor Wild Cornell Medicine. And Dr. Morrow is going to be addressing an overview of chronic myelogenous leukemia, or CML, current standard of care, the benefits of communicating with your healthcare team, survivorship and the importance of treatment summaries, and quality of life concerns. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Morrow. Thank you, Carolyn, and, and thank you, everyone, for joining us on the call today. Um, and it's a pleasure to join my colleague, Dr. Shaw, and, and, and uh, I thank the support of our sponsors for, uh, for hosting us. So my first task is to talk about an overview of CML. What is CML? Obviously, CML stands for chronic myelogenous leukemia or chronic myeloid leukemia, and it's one of the four main groups of leukemias. Um, when I see patients in the, in the office, one of the first things I try to work into the conversation if this is a new diagnosis is I say, in 2019, this is one of the most highly treatable and potentially functionally curable forms of leukemia. Um, we've really had a dramatic revolution in targeted therapy spearheaded by research in this diagnosis. But CML, again, is one of the four leukemias amongst leukemia diagnoses. We, we see about 6,000 or so cases um, diagnosed in the United States each year. And another phenomenal point is that the number of people surviving CML, living with CML in the United States, for example, is, continues to rise dramatically from a previous number of around 25,000 people living with the diagnosis to an estimate of almost a quarter million um, will be living as survivors of CML or, or managing their CML by 2050. So what used to be a less common diagnosis is becoming um, more frequently observed and better treated. CML is a myeloproliferative disease. That is an overproduction disease of the blood and the bone marrow, which really manifests as several things. When a patient is diagnosed or a person is diagnosed with CML, the main problems that often develop are Symptoms which can be nonspecific, things like fevers, night sweats, uh, weight loss, uh, 
generalized fatigue, abdominal discomfort because of an enlarged spleen. Often there aren't any symptoms and the diagnosis is made based on a blood test that's abnormal. I many times have patients who say, I've got a call because I was in the doctor's office for another issue for a checkup and I was called into the emergency room for a very abnormal blood count where the white blood count is elevated. Um, there can be abnormalities in the red blood cells and, and more often abnormalities in the platelets, often high, sometimes low. What we see in the blood is cells that should normally be in the bone marrow in, in the peripheral blood, in the circulation that is, in great excess, anywhere from just a little bit above normal to quite a bit above normal. Uh, and the normal is five to 10,000. We can see patients with blood counts into the 100,000s. This is a, obviously a serious condition and does require urgent treatment. So, you know, settling on the diagnosis and ensuring that it's chronic leukemia requires further testing and there are some immediate steps that need to be taken. The kind of testing people have to make the diagnosis of CML often includes extensive blood testing and review of the blood, a good examination to see about enlargement of the spleen or other physical signs or symptoms, but most importantly, genetic testing and, and bone marrow testing to identify the root cause. And CML is particularly characterized by a, a genetic marker called the Philadelphia chromosome. This was the first human cancer linked to a genetic abnormality. And in 1960, a simple observation that a short chromosome 22 amongst the human chromosomes, which can be detected in many different ways, is linked to a cancer, really led to the, the, where we are today with targeted treatments that focus on that genetic change and the things that happen as a result. The, the, um, the other testing that's often done, just to mention it, and this will probably come up in, in Dr. Shaw's presentation or in questions, includes other genetic testing such as FISH, fluorescence in situ hybridization, and most importantly, PCR or polymerase chain reaction. That is the workhorse by which we measure CML. Um, it's the way we make a diagnosis in many cases. It's also for certain the way we gauge improvements because quickly most patients have very low evidence of, or low levels of CML only detectable by sensitive tests like PCR. The PCR is measured on a logarithmic scale and, and we'll talk about that a bit later I'm sure as well. And remissions are measured in, um, in stages, blood remission, bone marrow remission, and ultimately molecular remission, and including deep molecular remission. Let me talk next about the standard treatment for CML. So that's a, a bit of a loaded question because the standard for CML, thank goodness, has been able to take advantage of the fact that there are five oral medications approved for chronic myeloid leukemia in different, um, uh, with different features, um, and particularly for the Someone newly diagnosed with CML, newly discovered to have chronic myeloid leukemia, there are four medications approved. And that's an update because we previously had three, not that that um, uh, was too many. Now we have four, so we're gracious to have um, many treatment options. There are four tyrosine kinase inhibitors, which is an, uh, uh, the Philadelphia chromosome generates an enzyme called a tyrosine kinase, which is activated. And summarizing a tremendous amount of work by a tremendous number of people, um, targeted therapy developed in this, in this disorder based on the principle that if you could target the abnormal kinase and uh, either inactivate it or um, inactivate its, its pathway, you could have a significant impact and, and shut down the CML. And the names of these drugs are amantinib, nilantinib, desantinib, and basutinib. Those are the four drugs approved for someone recently diagnosed. This, these are oral therapies taken once or twice daily. and the kind of approach to a newly diagnosed patient with CML would be to obviously make the diagnosis correctly and stabilize any media concerns or problems, identify the Philadelphia chromosome, and choose one of these therapies based on the patient's other health conditions. <coughs> Excuse me. Their, their, um, their, their features of their CML in some cases, 
but generally we have an open discussion about the fact that several of the drugs offer relative benefits, some additional or unique side effects, and we, we go from there with, again, a, a broad palette of drugs available. Of the five drugs in total, and four of the ones I mentioned available at diagnosis, <clears throat> if not used initially, many of these can be used for a situation where response is either inadequate or also, and probably quite importantly, if there are side effects for the first drug chosen or even the second or the third. So we, we move amongst these drugs carefully and, and deliberately when needed, um, trying to make our best choice first regarding what a patient might need to best get them into remission, and that is um, not only initial blood remission or bone marrow remission, but a deep molecular remission. And, and the next point to make is that that's a journey. The, the response to CML is measured not in days or weeks, but in months and even years. But at, on a good note, um, fairly rapidly patients will go into a hematologic remission where the blood counts are no longer normal. They may still be um, abnormal in some ways, such as somewhat suppressed after clearance of the leukemia, um, but physical symptoms like uh, um, abdominal symptoms from an enlarged spleen or other findings also need to be gone. And, and again, that's the first step, a hematologic response or hematologic remission. When the CML is no longer detected in the bone marrow, the, when the leukemia is about 100 times smaller than its, and, and than its origin point, we call that a bone marrow or cytogenetic remission. And as you might expect, that's measured by that type of testing. And the, um, the, the, probably the workhorse, again, and most important tool we use, molecular testing gauges patients' deep remissions, uh, a, a major molecular response where the leukemia level is 1,000 times lower than the, the origin point, and deeper molecular emissions, um, upwards of 10,000 to 50,000 or even greater fold reduction beyond the starting point. That type of remission um, is when we begin to think about um, that this leukemia may be fully treated, and if someone can be observed for a period of time, a, a, a significant amount of time, the longer the better, perhaps. But there is a, a notion called treatment-free remission, um, and I'm getting, you know, sort of jumping right to the end here, but um, in 2019 as well, even based on our guidelines that we write for American physicians, the National Comprehensive Cancer Network, there is a pathway forward for some patients who are able to get prompt remission and have a deep and stable molecular remission um, with careful and physician um, guidance and oversight and um, following a fairly specific set of rules, some patients can have their treatment held. They can be carefully observed and have more frequent blood testing and may not need to take their therapy indefinitely. Hence the term functional cure and, and, and the, um, the culmination of, of not only the origins of targeted therapy and the fact that remission rates are exceedingly high, but the fact that treatment may not need to be indefinitely in some patients. The, the other points I wanted to cover are a little bit more um, the logistics and the nuts and bolts of being a patient with CML or, or a loved one with someone with CML or a, a caregiver. And um, the, the importance of communicating with your healthcare team you know, can't be understated. This, again, is a bit of a marathon where you're uh, being treated for, again, months and years. Um, you're navigating response milestones, blood test results, bone marrow results, PCR results, side effects. And, and the discussion about, you know, the breadth of potential treatment options someone may need. So understanding the basics about what the diagnosis is, what the problems to look out for are, what the tests mean, um, how to interpret them, and, and most in, and, and, uh, for of, of greatest importance is an open line of communication regarding any issues that come up, side effects. One of the most important uh, keys to success in treatment of CML is um, what we call treatment adherence or, you know, stickability, ability to continue to take the medication as prescribed regularly for a long period of time. 
And just taking a medication, even one with no side effects, is a challenge because it's a, it's a daily task that can't be forgotten. Um, having side effects uh, on top of that, which can limit your ability to, to adhere to treatment or not make you want to adhere to treatment, of course, could, make, could get in the way. So communication with the healthcare team on all these issues is of vital importance. Um, you know, during treatment, we, we focus on quality of life, um, survivorship, and, and, and the, the long-term plan. And, you know, part of that can be understanding um, how your treatment's looking by what's called a treatment summary, an, an overview. I think we underutilize that in this disease and, and probably could do even better in giving people tools to help them understand the journey that they're taking with CML, how their response needs to look, and, and how we're following them and how they're doing. So, um, you know, ask and obviously seek um, summaries of your care, your treatment to allow you to communicate with other physicians. Increasingly, we face side effects um, that uh, may benefit from the attention of other specialists, such as cardiologists or even cancer-focused cardiologists called cardio-oncologists. If you're on a medication with some side effects or have other health issues in that regard and need to have your, those, those kind of parameters carefully followed, as in, you know, how is my heart health relative to the fact that I'm now being treated for leukemia and may have some side effects? Um, a treatment summary from, from your leukemia physician may be paramount, and, and communication between other specialists can happen in that way. Taking the journey of CML, obviously, um, we always are aiming for survivorship and uh, someone to be a CML warrior, CML survivor. So that notion in CML, um, you know, it speaks loud and clear that we need to focus on the whole patient and everything about the treatment, not just the immediate gains and the immediate uh, um, goals, but uh, the balance. Uh, you know, the point is not to have medication be working beautifully, but the, but the person having side effects and struggling to take it and not understanding what's happening. That would be the worst case scenario. And survivorship often means, um, you know, thinking about the whole, the whole person and their quality of life and, and the, the balance um, that, and, and the complexity of the journey of CML. The, um, in the last few moments of the closing, I just wanted to say that, you know, again, this is a highly treatable and, you know, and again, increasingly, we're, we're hoping that it will be a functionally curable form of leukemia. We have oral therapies, which are highly effective. I didn't even get into some of the response rates, but just to speak in, in broad terms, the overwhelming majority of patients, or nearly all patients, will see their blood counts improve with therapy. It's a rare patient that isn't able to achieve that first milestone. A significant majority, very high numbers of patients achieve uh, molecular responses, uh, and that those follow bone marrow or cytogenic responses. And again, a growing number of patients are able to get into a deep molecular remission and be considered carefully again and under, only under careful guidelines to potentially have their treatment only be of a certain duration. Again, many years still, but not indefinitely. And as we work forward in the research we're doing, um, we're focused on that element, treatment-free remission, or um, how to achieve it if, even if it doesn't um, possible the first time, how to increase a fraction of people who have the deepest remissions and in whom that's el they're eligible for that. And of course, there's ongoing research into newer agents um, to broaden the, the treatment options and to better manage side effects, particularly the, the ones that are most common as we age and, and may be common in, in the typical person who's facing CML, such as cardiovascular symptoms. I'm gonna stop there and turn it back over to Carolyn and Neil. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Moore. That was really outstanding and really just set a wonderful stage for the whole program today. So thank you so much. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Neil Shah. Dr. Shah is Edward S. Agino, Distinguished Professor, 
professor in hematology oncology. He's director UCSF molecular medicine residency program, leader hematopoietic malignancy program, Helen Dillow Family Comprehensive Cancer Center, University of California, San Francisco. So Dr. Shah is going to be addressing clinical trials, including clinical trial updates, managing post-treatment side effects, late effects, adherence, taking your pills on schedule, and benefits of follow-up care. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Shah. Thank you very much, Carolyn, and thank you, Dr. Morrow, for the topics you you, uh, covered, and thank you for all of you who've uh, tuned in today. So, yeah, I wanted to start off and talk about some um, clinical trial uh, updates now, and just, you know, I'm sure everybody understands the importance of clinical trials. Um, Every approved therapy that we have is only made possible because of the um, because of the courage, if you will, of people who've gone before us and offered to participate in clinical trials, not necessarily knowing if they were going to benefit, not necessarily knowing if they were going to maybe have bad side effects. Ladies and gentlemen, please stand by. Your conference will resume momentarily. Um, am I on? Yes. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Um, so the thing about uh, the thing about these treatment um, options, uh, the, the, the thing that's instructive about these treat op- treatment options is to think about them in really three broad categories. Now they 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 all work in the same manner, and that is through uh, through inhibiting the activity of BCR able, as Dr. Morrow mentioned, uh, but the imatinib was the first of these developed, and um, it's a good drug, but there are no perfect drugs, and some people have side effects, some people don't respond adequately, and some people lose response, and so that opened the door years ago for the development of alternative BCR-ABLE inhibitors, what we call the second-generation drugs, and those are the three additional drugs, dasatinib, nilotinib, and bosutinib, that are approved um, both in the second line and also in front line, as I mentioned. And then lastly, there's the third-generation drug, panatinib. Now, all four of the first and second generation drugs um, fail to adequately treat one particular drug-resistant mutation called the T315I mutation, and panatinib uh, was specifically designed to uh, treat that uh, disease associated with that mutation, and it's highly effective, and encouragingly, it's also effective against uh, all other mutations, all other drug-resistant mutations that we're aware of. Um, the problem with its uptake in clinical practice has been primarily its association with um, an unsatisfactorily high incidence of uh, concerning side effects, most particularly uh, cardiovascular in nature. Um, so there are opportunities, uh, despite the fact that we have these five approved drugs, to develop treatments that are uh, that are active um, uh, because many patients 
um, actually over a period of a few years, so sometimes you know longer, sometimes shorter, may develop a combination of treatment uh, or intolerance of all the approved drugs. And uh, and although panatinib is out there as a as a um, as sort of a a final line of defense, um, many of us are uncomfortable treating patients with that uh, indefinitely because of the cardiovascular. Uh, toxicity that has been observed with it. So there are clearly uh, continue to be, um, especially with more and more people living with this disease, uh, more uh, need to develop therapies that are active and uh, and and well tolerated. So um, uh, as well as uh, agents that can deal besides panatinib that can deal with that C315I mutation. So turning to the clinical trial updates that I have for you. Um, so first, I just want to mention that uh, actually a couple of these are actually coming out of China. Uh, for the first time, we're seeing you know new drugs entering the market in China. And the first one, um, or the new, new drugs being developed, I should say, in China, the first one uh, was just presented about two weeks ago um, at the American Society of Clinical Oncology meeting um, it's a drug called flumatinib, F-L-U-M-A-T-I-N-I-B, um, which is basically a derivative of imatinib. Now, one of the second-generation drugs, nilotinib, is also a derivative of imatinib. This is a different structural derivative, uh, but this was tested head-to-head in uh, newly diagnosed patients uh, uh, in comparison with imatinib, which um, probably is taken as first-line therapy more than any other treatment at the at the present time, and um, again, although imatinib is is clearly an effective drug for many people, previous experiences told us that the second generation drugs uh, may be better in terms of achieving deep resp- or appear to be better in terms of achieving deep responses. But there's absolutely nothing wrong in today's day and age to start somebody on imatinib. But in this particular study, there were 400 patients, 200 of whom randomized to receive this new drug, flumatinib, and the other 200, uh, the prior or the standard of care imatinib. And they basically looked at the rate of deep response, um, uh, deep molecular response, I'm sorry, or major molecular response, I should say, which is uh, about uh, a level down to 0.1% uh, on average compared with the level of diagnosis. And, and the rate was significantly higher at all time points assessed, three months, six months, and 12 months, uh, with the new drug. Um, And in addition, at 12 months, the rate of that deep molecular response, which could potentially, if sustained, um, offer the chance of treatment discontinuation, was also significantly higher in patients treated with this new drug. And so this drug um, appears to be active. In terms of the side effect profile, diarrhea was certainly more common there was a higher incidence of uh, grade three uh, and four, which are which are moderate, uh, which, I'm sorry, which are potentially severe and life-threatening. There was a higher incidence of of those in patients on the flumatinib arm, uh, but so we will need to have a little bit longer follow-up to ensure that these uh, that this agent looks, you know, uh, that the safety profile is actually. Um, is actually acceptable, but certainly, as I said, uh, the, the more agents we have, uh, certainly there are patients who can benefit from that. Um, so, in terms of other agents being developed to, to speak about that, there are probably three or four others. I want to highlight um, two of them. 
that have promise for the BCR-ABLE T315I mutation, which, as I mentioned, is resistant to four out of the five approved drugs, with the exception of penatinib. And the drug that's furthest along in clinical development for the treatment of this is a drug called Asiminib, or also known as ABLE001. And this drug is slightly different in as much as it still goes after the same target, which is BCR-ABLE, but it binds to BCR-ABLE in a distinct position. And that may allow it to be more selective towards its intended target and not hit other things, which the hope would be that it would be associated with uh, a lower incidence of side effects. And this was, has been um, tested in a large number of patients so far. Um, it's still undergoing clinical trial evaluation, but it has promise for the T315I mutation, as well as uh, really pretty much you know most other um, drug-resistant mutations. And uh, in the clinical trial, um, complete um, cytogenetic responses have been observed in um, a, a significant proportion of patients. And I should, uh, to quantify it, it's been approximately two-thirds of patients who are, um, you know, who are what we call valuable for a uh, response. And also, a considerable proportion of patients, close to, close to 35-40%, um, have achieved uh, a major molecular response, which is highly encouraging. Um, its side effect profile seems to be um, quite good with a low incidence of grade 3 and 4. Um, again, those are the, the severe and life-threatening um, side effects. And um, it's uh, continuing in clinical trial development, and we're certainly hopeful that it, it may make its way across the finish line in the not-too-distant future. I should mention that in terms of the patients who were treated on this, um, we've never seen patients who have pretty much been exposed to so many prior therapies as, as has been the case on this trial, um, primarily because we have so many approved therapies now. Um, it's, it's generally considered um, unethical to treat people uh, on clinical trials until they've uh, largely exhausted um, the available options. And so, anyway, this is uh, encouraging uh, uh, data that, that was presented at last year's American Society of Hematology meeting in December and looking quite good. And then the last um, drug that I want to talk about in some detail is a drug um, out of uh, China as well that's actually, um, as I mentioned, the previous drug was a derivative of imatinib. This drug uh, looks like it's a derivative of ponatinib, which is that third-generation drug that hits the T315I mutation and others. And in a clinical trial of approximately 100 patients, um, the vast majority of whom had been treated with two tyrosine kinase inhibitors or three. Um, but importantly, this trial excluded patients who had previously uh, been treated with penatinib, and importantly, it excluded people who had significant cardiovascular risk factors, including hypertension. hypertension. And um, so it was a kind of a little bit of a, of a select group of patients that was uh, assessed, but um, appeared uh, to be reasonably well tolerated. Um, the uh, pretty low incidence of, of uh, serious and life-threatening side effects, um, and moreover, the rates of cytogenetic response were really quite high in both the chronic phase patients uh, with the T315I mutation, in which complete cytogenetic responses were seen in nearly three quarters. 
um, as well as in those patients that didn't have that mutation where the response rate was lower. But overall, it was more than half of the patients had that complete cytogenetic response. Now, I think we still need to get more granular information regarding the potential toxicity of this agent, its, its potential to cause cardiovascular toxicity, because it does look quite similar to panatinib chemically and in terms of the other, the other uh, kinases that it inhibits. So um, I want to move on um, now to talk about um, managing side effects. Um, this is um, most patients will uh, will experience the majority of the side effects that they will have within the first uh, couple of months, and gradually things will improve. However, it's important to realize that side effects can sometimes accumulate uh, over time. Certain side effects and certain side effects can pop up out of the blue. Um, after a period of time. So anything new, it's always important to inform your uh, 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 physician about to ask if it could possibly be related to the drug. It can be kind of difficult sometimes to know for sure. So one thing that I do in those circumstances is I uh, instruct patients to uh, keep a careful diary of the symptoms and, and, and to grade them on a scale of 1 to 10, and then to try a two-week treatment break and then pay, let the drug wash out of the system during the first week and then during the second week, again, take careful note of any symptoms. And if, they, if the symptoms improve substantially, then there's a really good likelihood that what they were experiencing was treatment-related. Um, but so managing side effects or certainly recognizing them is the first step to managing them. And then it's also important to realize that for many of the drugs, um, it's possible to use doses that are lower than the FDA-approved dose. This is really the art of medicine in large part more than the science of medicine. But certainly many of us who specialize in this disease I'm sure, you know, have a lot of patients who are on doses far lower than the FDA-approved dose in patients who've achieved a nice response but are having some bothersome side effects. So um, in most patients, are, or pretty much in all, well, in all patients, our goal is to not only achieve deep remissions but to really maximize quality of life. And so um, our ability to do that um, is, is greater than ever given the number of drugs that we have and the, the ones coming down the pipeline, as well as uh, employing uh, dose uh, uh, modifications, as I've mentioned. So don't feel like um, it's your lot in life to put up with undesirable side effects. Um, if you've only been on, like, one drug at one dose or even two drugs, um, there are other options out there. Um, so one other thing to really stress is the importance of taking medications as prescribed. Um, it's one of the great tragedies of the management of this disease that given that these drugs can turn what was uh, a disease that ran its course relatively quickly uh, in the past to one in which we expect the vast majority of people to live an otherwise normal lifespan, one of the great tragedies uh, is when patients, um, for one reason or another, um, decide not to take their disease seriously um, and, and don't take their medications as prescribed. And if the disease becomes more aggressive, it can become very difficult to treat and can become life-threatening. And so it is extremely important to take pills as prescribed. Um, and to follow up um, with your physician regularly, um, I check in with patients every three months, at least for the first few years, and then in select patients who are responding well, we can relax that to every six months. 
but we have to realize that um, we can't really um, turn our backs on this disease. Um, it, it can potentially uh, still become life-threatening uh, in patients. Um, and so it's extremely important to just bear in mind that the medical sciences, scientific advances have, uh, for most patients, uh, enabled us to uh, treat it effectively with uh, treatments that are well tolerated. Uh, but those treatments will only work if people if people take the pills and if they have. The, um, the recommended follow-up testing for monitoring the disease. So that concludes what I wanted to say. Now I'll turn it back over to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Shah. That was really outstanding, a wonderful presentation. Um, and um, please, everyone, get ready with your questions because I'm just going to say a few words about cancer care services that you can access, and then we're going to take your questions. So um, cancer care is a national organization, and we provide... Uh, services to people throughout the country, to the United States, um, and those services, in, and they're all free. So all of our programs and services are free. And they include both practical and financial assistance. So we have a copay foundation as well um, to help with all the costs of chemotherapy treatments. Um, we also um, help with a lot of other just practical things with our just general cancer care funds. We, we also have a staff of really oncology social workers, they're master's level trained social workers who are there to talk with you about the things that may be troubling you or of concern to you. And so people will always often call us um, on the R800 number or, or they can go to our website and post a question as well, but they can actually, some of the issues that people may be concerned about Maybe how do I talk to my boss about my cancer, or how do I tell my friends? Do I tell my friends? Who do I disclose to about my my cancer, about my CML? Um, and what about my children? How do I talk to them? Um, and lots of questions like that, or just how do I deal with it myself? How do I cope with this, living with this, um, with CML? Um, even though it's being successfully treated, I still have concerns. So, um, and we also also have a number of telephone support groups, and we have um, about 138 online support groups. And those groups, the online groups, are for people, um, both caregivers and people living with CML and um, young adults, uh, middle-aged adults, older adults, um, uh, partners, spouses, um, children, adult children, so lots of different services. We also have a Cancer Care for Kids program to help children um, and families where there is CML or cancer. And we also um, just have a host of other services um, that um, for you to access. In addition, we run these education workshops, and we do have publications as well that you can get in fact sheets so that there's lots of information you can get from us. So that being said, um, now we are able to take your questions. And so um, I'm going to ask uh, Crystal to explain how to queue up for questions. And I'm going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. So, and you should bring all of our speakers on board for that. Okay. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And again, ladies and gentlemen, that's star one to ask a question. So I have a question from one of our online participants. Um, and um, the question is, can I breastfeed while taking therapy for CML? Um, 
uh, Dr. Morrow, I, do you want to address that question? Sure. Um, that's a topic of interest to all of us uh, now that we have more and more CML survivors, um, especially women of childbearing age. Um, how do we tackle the question of um, not just breastfeeding, but um, conception, fertility, uh, the opportunity to potentially plan a family around CML treatment if possible? But to answer the question specifically, um, breastfeeding, um, I don't know if we have enough information to say, but I think always, of course, speak with the obstetrician, gynecologist, or pediatrician. But um, I think we have some data with imantinib or Gleevec, and perhaps with some of the other TKIs that there may be some <coughs> transmission or movement of, of Gleevec into, into breast milk, but probably at fairly low or, or, or um, modest concentrations. Um, but um, ideally, I bundle breastfeeding into potentially a treatment interruption from TKIs um, for the purpose of pregnancy, you know, conception, pregnancy, um, carrying a child, delivering, and potentially breastfeeding if possible. That's not so easy because breastfeeding can sometimes um, naturally uh, be desired for a long period of time when it may not be possible to be off therapy. So I would, I would say that I don't think we have enough data to say that it's absolutely safe. I think. If someone's on perhaps a mandib, which is the drug we have the most information on, it's probably quite safe even if there are small amounts um, absorbed. I, I think that um, it's a discussion to have, and, and, and it, it, I, I err on the side of saying it may be reasonable, but the relative merits and risks to the, to the child always have to be considered, and, and that would have to be followed. Thank you. And Dr. Shah, did you want to add anything to that? Or? No, no, that was great. Okay. I would agree with that. Okay, excellent. And um, a question for um, for Dr. Shah. Um, so, can CML treatment drugs interfere with other medications? Who should I speak to about making sure there aren't any bad drug interactions? Yeah, so drug interactions can fall into you know actually a couple of different categories. Um, so, all of the drugs uh, that that we've discussed that are approved, all the five tyrosine kinase inhibitors are all metabolized in the liver by the same enzyme, and this is a very common drug metabolizing enzyme, and so um, you can imagine if you have the ability to uh, ramp up the meta meta that metabolizing enzyme by some, some other drug, and there are drugs that do that, they're called inducers of this enzyme then you're going to actually chew up the drug, uh, the CML drug, faster than we would like, and somebody may not have an adequate dose uh, in their bloodstream despite taking the prescribed dose. Um, on the flip side, you can do the opposite. You can have drugs that inhibit this metabolizing enzyme, which can lead to very high levels and potentially the, some that can, cause, uh, that can cause side effects. And so, um, in general, uh, these class, for those of you who are interested, are called CYP3A4 inhibitors or inducers, and there are, uh, there are you know, dozens and dozens of them. I think it's always wise to alert your CML-treating physician of any new medication that you may be starting to ask if there's a potential for a drug-drug interaction. One other thing to say is that um, there are uh, a couple of drugs. Um, I mean, the extent to which it's been studied is is not as 
extensive as, as I think we would like, um, but certainly the first drug that it was discovered that a, um, um, an acidic gastric environment was required for its absorption was dasatinib. And um, because a study was done where people either took their, their dasatinib following taking uh, an antacid or, or, or not, and taking an antacid diminished the absorption. So it's not dangerous from a toxicity standpoint. It's more concerning from a lack of effectiveness standpoint. And so um, that's certainly an issue to keep an eye on. It does, it's not a contraindication, and so many people will respond nonetheless um, um, despite taking antacids, but we just need to be cognizant of that and, and manage patients uh, uh, appropriately. I've also seen it, to be honest, with a few of the other drugs as well, and so I'm not sure the extent to which it has been adequately, you know, investigated, um, but it's something to keep in mind. We also, just as a note of general caution, have, uh, I think the, the world of internal medicine has begun to take a serious look at whether it is uh, uh, not such a good idea for people to be on some of these long-acting antacids, such as proton pump inhibitors. Um, for years and years and years, many people do have reflux and they get benefit from that. But there have been some studies to suggest that people who are on those medications, this is completely unrelated to CML, but that people who are on that class of medications for reasons that are not entirely clear um, may have their uh, somewhat shortened lifespan. And um, so that, that's something, you know, to keep in mind with, with that class of medications in general and, again, apart from CML. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. And um, another question for um, Dr. Mora from one of our online participants. So does having CML affect vaccines or immunizations? Interesting question. Um, I would say that in a broader scope, we often get the concern about um, am I immune compromised because I have CML or because I'm taking a CML medication? And if we look at the trials that we've run and the kinds of complications people have had, I would not say that there's a pattern of, of what are called opportunistic infections or um, breakthroughs for, for people who were previously vaccinated. Um, blood counts are often um, remain robust, uh, so it, although they can, uh, people can go through a period where their white blood cell can, count can be low and the bacteriophyte cells called neutrophils can be low. But we thankfully don't have the immune suppression we see with other chemotherapies, which can happen sometimes not only during chemotherapy but also afterwards. But the question was about immunizations and maybe vaccination. I personally don't view a CML patient as being particularly immune compromised, particularly one, a person who's in remission. So I think I, I generally recommend patients can avail themselves to vaccinations as needed. If they're traveling, if they just need to be um, updated or just need to be vaccinated because of it at that point in life. Um, the age CML treatment often encompasses maybe just revaccination boosters or uh, pneumococcal vaccine, um, shingles vaccination, et cetera. Um, you, you probably are familiar as a community that better vaccines have become available, such as um, vaccines that are not live or are just live attenuated, but they're inactivated. So the concern drops even lower. Bottom line, I do not think vaccinations are 
are should be limited in the CML patient, particularly someone who's in response or remission. And I don't view CML or CML treatment with a TKI as particularly an immune compromised state. Although I always encourage people to talk to their doctor and coordinate between, for example, their internist and their hematologist uh, regarding any vaccinations that may be needed. Thank you. And Dr. Shaw, do you want to add anything? Or? Yeah, I, I generally agree. I mean, I think if we do, you know, look at the formal recommendations, which I think are derived on largely theoretical and maybe exclusively theoretical concerns of the type raised by Dr. Morrow, you know, the, by the letter of the law, we should avoid live vaccines. And um, so, you know, a subset of vaccines are live and, and many are not. And the ones that are not, certainly there's absolutely no concern whatsoever. And just given this somewhat theoretical risk, um, you know, it's, it's formally recommended to avoid the live vaccines. However, I counsel patients that if, you know, if it appears clear that the potential benefit of the vaccine outweighs any largely or almost exclusively theoretical risk, then I'm entirely supportive of them of them receiving the vaccine. I think if it if it were me, I would probably proceed and based on what I know, I would probably proceed in 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 in, in almost all circumstances with recommended vaccines, um, irrespective of whether they're live. But the formal recommendation um, at this point is to um, is to uh, refrain from uh, from from administering live vaccines because the concern is if there is some minor immune suppression, then maybe it could trigger or, or enable that, that live vaccine, which is usually crippled, but enable it to, if it mutates, it could become active. There's a lot of hypotheticals in this, as you can see. And so that's why I say it's uh, almost a, a purely theoretical concern. Awesome. Thank you. Very helpful. Thank you. Um, excellent. And another question um, for Dr. Shah. Um, so are there foods I shouldn't take during treatment? Can I still drink alcohol? So in terms of foods, um, the main thing I mentioned earlier, the metabolizing enzyme and how in the liver and how drugs can impact. There are also certain foods that can impact. For instance, uh, grapefruit is one that some people uh, like, um, and uh, and and but we cannot. Uh, we have to uh, counsel patients to avoid that because that can um, induce this metabolizing, um, or can inhibit rather this metabolizing enzyme. Also, star fruit, which is something that's not all that common in this country, but more common in some Asian countries, is is something else. Now, in terms of alcohol, I'm you know frequently asked this question. I mean, I think. In general, there are good reasons for everybody to, you know, to not drink in excess. Um, and I think the same holds true for um, CML patients. I think, I think having the occasional um, alcoholic beverage, you know, I don't have concerns about. I would probably limit it, especially during the first few months after starting a new drug, because some of the drugs can impact liver function uh, themselves. And um, just to err on the side of caution, you know, I would probably feel more comfortable having patients, um, you know, maybe abstain during the first couple of months, uh, if possible, and then, and then, of course, um, and then, of course, they can resume. Thank you. And Dr. Um, Morrow, do you want to add anything? Or? Uh, I I was once reminded by another colleague. Um, that 
um, advice about alcohol intake is relative to who you're speaking to. So moderation to one person may be excess to another. So I, I echo Dr. Shah's thoughts that to not overindulge and uh, to not become intoxicated um, ever. Um, but um, moderation is the key in, I mean, almost everything in, in medicine and life. And uh, ultimately, uh, there shouldn't be a hard and fast rule, but definitely caution. And it's the first thing to go, for example, if there are side effects um, that may be suspicious, liver enzyme changes, for example. Um, and uh, so that's the only thing I would add. Well, we have wonderful questions and wonderful team to answer them. Thank you so much, both of you. And um, so a question for Dr. Morrow, um, from one of our online participants. What causes CML? Great question. <clears throat> um, I often find myself in the office um, immediately trying to reassure people about um, the cause of CML because immediately we begin speaking about genetics and chromosomes, and mm -hmm. there's an immediate notion that this is, must, must be something that's um, inborn or inherited or transmissible, you know, to, or given to offspring or otherwise. In essence, this is an error that happens in the, in the normal production of blood in the bone marrow. Um, it's actually probably more commonly, it could be more commonly detected um, if we tested people um, routinely uh, with very sensitive testing or, or sampled the healthy population. We can sometimes see evidence of the chromosome abnormality that causes CML in healthy people. Not that we're about to do that, but suffice it to say that it's, it's a genetic error that happens in the dividing blood cells, probably because of um, just the inherent error and the phys physiology of the way cells divide and grow. So I, I, um, I, I tell people that the, the cause is generally bad luck, um, that it's a genetic error uh, that can occur. Um, it, it tends to occur at a somewhat later point in life, although we do see this condition rarely in younger people, even in children. Uh, there may be some environmental factors related to that. There may be some differences worldwide. For example, we see younger rates of uh, younger median ages in certain parts of the world, but they may have to do with um, things that haven't really been fully elucidated. Um, what it's not uh, linked to that we know is one specific thing. The only time we've seen an uptick in CML related to a specific intervention, unfortunately, was in the world wars when nuclear weapons were used. So I try to absolve people from blame. It's not necessarily the hair dye, the the, uh, the rough living, the, the power lines, the, you know, the, the this or that that uh, people often worry about, and, and it's really unclear what what may be the uh, underlying cause for the genetic uh, basis of CML. Thank you, Dr. Shaw. Do you want to add anything? Or? Um, no, I mean, I think the only thing I would add is, I mean, I I, I, I struggle sometimes to answer people who want to know, well, okay, you told me that exposure to, to a significant amount of radiation, like if I survived uh, an atomic bomb in Japan in 1945, the risk later of developing CML was substantially higher. Um, but people sometimes will say, well, I've had a lot of radiation exposure, or I think I've had a lot of radiation exposure from multiple CAT scans, or um, I've had chemotherapy a while ago for breast cancer, and could this be related? And you know, the, the truth is we, we can't, we, it's hard to know for sure. Um, so that's the only thing I, I would add, but I, I certainly concur that, you know, probably more than anything, it's just it's just bad luck for, for, for lack of a better phrase. It happens to 
you know, between the latest estimates I've heard are close to 8,000 people uh, newly diagnosed in the U.S. every year as our population size has increased. That number is going to kind of gradually drift upward because it happens to a significant, uh, a certain proportion of people every year. Um, but we're not seeing, you know, like uh, anything to suggest um, that, that there's some environmental exposure that's that, that's causing. Uh, and the numbers aren't changing in that sense, and then we aren't seeing anything to suggest that there's an environmental trigger. And that's, uh, you know, unfortunately, it's an unsatisfactory answer, but. What I tell patients is, from everything we know, the likelihood that their first-degree relatives will have cancer, meaning their siblings or their children, is really no different um, uh, than if they had not themselves had CML. Thank you. I think we have a collective sigh of relief from the audience, people realizing that that's um, so it's perhaps more of a random uh, occurrence. Is that does that seem appropriate word to use or not really? I would say I would say so. I mean, the truth of the matter is, as Dr. Morrow alluded to, is and we don't think about this, but you know, our cells that are dividing normally in our body every day have to faithfully copy all of our DNA, and our DNA is made up of uh, boy, I think it's three billion nucleotides and um, so in that process the machinery is highly highly accurate but it's not a hundred percent accurate and so when you're copying that many you're going to randomly introduce some errors and some things are going to happen and unfortunately that's even if you even if you eat only organic foods and you know, do everything that you feel is, uh, you know, you stay away from cigarettes, which are clearly known to cause mutations. Um, you know, you, you do things to avoid, you know, cancer-causing materials. Um, unfortunately, that's not a guarantee. Um, and as Dr. Morrow mentioned, there are even some people who are diagnosed with this disease in the pediatric uh, age range, sometimes as young as even before the age of 10. That's highly, highly unusual, but, but it has been observed. And so, um, so without question, there's, um, uh, there, there's a, random, a random nature to it. Thank you. Thank you. And um, a question now for you, Dr. Shah. Um, so my medications are delivered to my home while I'm at work. And as summer is approaching, I'm afraid in different parts, obviously someone where summer is approaching, I'm afraid they might melt a little in that heat. If this happens, is it still safe to take them? How can I avoid this? Or are there extra requests that I can make regarding delivery? Yeah, so um, this is an excellent question. And, you know, and, and sort of related to this, there will sometimes be patients who will maybe switch medications uh, for toxicity or because they no longer respond or maybe because they are just going to stop medications because they've had a deep molecular response and want to see if they can have a treatment-free remission, as Dr. Morrow described. Um, and in some of these, many of these cases, you know, patients will say, well, the medications are expensive and I don't, I'm not going to use them and I feel bad throwing them away because somebody else may benefit and who who better to sort of be that middleman to sort of facilitate transfer of that medication to a, a needy patient than the physician. But the problem is we uh, are not allowed to do that primarily because we cannot 
we cannot vouch for how the medication has been handled. And if uh, it is it is recommended to store these medications within certain you know degrees Fahrenheit range. Um, I'd have to look at the bottles of them all individually, but I think they're generally between 60 and 85 degrees. Um, the extent to which um, and the, uh, to, to the extent to which um, their stability is impacted by temperatures outside these range, I'm not sure how, how well established that is, but then there is concern that if the medication is um, not kept within this range, that it may be less effective. And again, it's hard to know, but my recommendation would be to try to have um, the medication delivered when somebody is home, and so it can be put in a more um, uh, uh, appropriate temperature-controlled environment. And Dr. Moore, do you want to add anything to that? I think Dr. Shaw covered that one very well. Okay, thank you. Um, and um, so the, another question now for Dr. Morrow, um, how is pediatric CML different from adult CML? Well, first off, it's less common. It's very, you know, the um, the peak incidence in, you know, in, in Europe and, and, and the U.S. is in the, in the 50s and 60s. Um, but worldwide, we definitely see pediatric CML. So, one thing to say is it often looks more robust. Um, um, some of the scoring systems and models we use to say how might an adult CML case behave really don't apply to children. Um, that being said, it can look very much like the adult form of, of CML. Um, the good news is, is that children, just like adults, have been able to take advantage of oral targeted therapy pretty much um, as, uh, as adults have. And the... Um, the uh, medications available to children are almost the same as adults. Not all of the TKIs are approved in the uh, pediatric setting. The um, research is a little bit slower, as you might not be surprised to hear, and the uh, side effects sometimes can be different, but um, it's a often a more proliferative disease. It has good response rates. That there may be a little bit less certainty about treatment-free remission, really not a lot of information on that yet. Of course, a younger patient may be someone in whom we think more carefully about the path to cure, as they might call it. And, um, for example, there's often a lot of more discussion about stem cell or bone marrow transplant in the pediatric population. But I would say that TKI therapy is highly effective, fairly widely available, a little less studied, and the, and the diagnosis is uh, behaves just a little bit differently, but, but in principle is treated very much the same. Thank you. And Dr. Shaw, do you want to add anything to that? I would just add that um, you know one thing to be aware of in in growing children is the drugs can cause apparently at least some of the drugs may be may cause some growth retardation so that's something to be aware of in in um, in younger children and the thing to be aware of in in sort of older individuals in the pediatric range meaning 15 and towards 18 and including in the young adult population so I would say up to like you know, age 25 or, or so, is that that is a very vulnerable age group for um, for non-adherence, meaning for not taking the medication as prescribed. Um, I think it's a very, very difficult age with everything going on in life to adjust to a diagnosis. And in my experience, um, it, it's it's very sad, but it's 
it's sometimes sometimes these people slip through the cracks and they're lost to follow up and they just try as we may to tell them about the importance of taking a medication which we think if taken regularly and assuming they respond as the majority of people do that they will have decades and decades and will have a normal lifespan ahead of them versus substantially shorter than that if they if they don't take the medication because we know without any medication the disease runs its course over uh, the matter a matter of a few years typically and so so we do our best to try to work with these individuals but that is you know i think uh, th- th- that really does require a lot of attention thank you thank you very much well well, I want to thank um, our speakers. You've been, Dr. Um, Morrow and Dr. Shaw, you've been terrific, really amazing. And I want to thank all of our participants as well and those who asked such really great questions, those who have been listening and those who have asked great questions because it really did allow our speakers to elaborate on further points that, that are of concern to all of you. Um, and um, I know there are still questions in queue, so I just wanted to kind of go over with all of you how to get your questions answered. Um, and even those who asked questions, what to do with the answers and how to address them. So first of all, for those who have asked questions, we do still ask you to take it back to your treating healthcare team and ask the question of them and let them know that you're on this you know, program and you know, this is information you've learned, but still to really run it past your healthcare team because they obviously know each of you the very best. Um, and then um, I know many of you do like to go to other resources um, to get information. And so um, one thing is that there are a number of uh, blood cancer organizations that we partner with um, on this program. And there is, of course, the Leukemia Lymphoma Society as well. It's a wonderful resource as well. Um, and there are a number of other groups. So we will actually, when you get your evaluation, you're going to get a whole listing of potential resources that you can contact um, for getting really well-vetted information um, to answer your questions. I always as well give out to everybody um, the um, information about the National Cancer Institute you know they have a they have a wonderful um, call center. It's um, 800-422-6237, and you'll get that number also, of course. And they also have a uh, website, um, cancer.gov, and you can there's a get help now, and you can actually post your question, and their information specialist will really search their databases and get you information that you can then absorb, look at it, they'll help you with it, and then you can take that back to treating healthcare teams. So all of these are resources for all of you to have um, at your fingertips. Most importantly, um, as we conclude the program today, we do not want any one of you to feel alone in coping with CML. We want you to now know that you're, or with cancer, any type of cancer, we want you to now know that you're part of a community of support, a neighborhood of support, and indeed we're all here to help you. Um, and so both from your treating healthcare team uh, and those who would like to take advantage of services of cancer care and the other organizations, please do so. In this instance, sometimes many people feel the more help they get, the better, um, as long as it's consistent and as long as they're all working together to your benefit. Um, so please um, do not, I know there are moments when many of you may feel alone, um, and that's quite normal, but nevertheless, Practically speaking, you do have a lot of resources out there to help you, resources that you may not know about that these organizations or even with our cancer care social workers will know about somewhere that you can call to get the service that you would help that you need or your healthcare team will. So again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation.
This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.